Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hello and welcome to the CapEx podcast brought to you by the Centre for Policy Studies. I'm John Ashmore, the editor of CapEx. Uh, it's a special budget uh, edition podcast this week. Jeremy Hunt delivered his first budget as Chancellor on Wednesday. In fact, it was the first budget for 17 months, though it might not seem that way, having had the mini budget and the autumn statement at the back end of last year. So to discuss everything in Jeremy Hunt's budget, to run the rule over it, the economics of it, the politics of it, we are very glad to be joined by the director of the Centre for Policy Studies and CapEx's editor-in-chief, Robert Colville. Rob, welcome. Hello. And by our head of policy and head of tax, Tom Clockety, a regular on the podcast. Tom, hello. Hi. So, guys, we'll get straight into it. Uh, It was, in Rob's words, a very Hunt-Sunak budget, tackling the problems in front of them, no drama, calm competence policy over politics. There weren't many massive measures or things that we weren't expected, but guys, what were the biggest surprises for you, Rob? Well, I mean, there weren't any surprises because they, (laughs) for the first time in living memory, they leaked literally or or briefed out literally everything in the the budget. I mean, I I think the the pleasant surprise, obviously, was there's not going to be a recession this year. That's that's good. Uh, The... um, I think the uh, abolishing the pension uh, cap rather than just raising it was was, was interesting. Um, full expensing we was 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 good. There'd been a lot of uncertainty about quite how generous they'd be on that. Although it is really stupid that they've uh, made that temporary rather than permanent, and that's entirely due to uh, treasury spending rules as opposed to what makes sense for the economy. Like everyone from you know everyone, every commentator, even the Labour Party are saying, just let's just make it permanent, um, which is obviously encouraging because it suggests uh, continuity. Um, and I, I think the, I mean, the surprise in a, in a way was that there were no rabbits. There was no, um, uh, there was no nothing, you know, if you're a, if you're an ordinary punter listening to this and you, you know, yes, your energy bills aren't going to go up for the next three months, um, which is good, but um you know, fundamentally, we're, the living standards are still going down, taxes are still going up. We're still not in a very good place, but that's partly just because of the hand the Chancellor had to, you know, that, that he'd been dealt. Yeah, I mean, I think it's it's quite interesting considering, you know, my own initial reaction to the budget yesterday. You know, overall, I feel pretty positive about it. I think there are a lot of good measures involved. Um, but part of that is because of the framing, the fact that the nasty stuff we've known about for years, and it was already in the baseline. So, you know, raising the rate of corporation tax by a third when the economy is this weak, 
not really a great idea. Uh, freezing tax thresholds when inflation is high and you're in, a, you're in a cost of living crisis. Again, not great. If those things had been announced yesterday, it would have put quite a, a different spin on the whole thing. But if you, if you absolve Hunt of guilt for any of that, um, and at the end of the day, they weren't really his decisions, um, and, he's, and he's just living with them now, I think the measures that he did announce were overwhelmingly positive, even though, of course, the devil is in the detail and there are a variety of things that we can quibble over, uh, from full expensing to childcare uh, and beyond. Yeah, we'll get into some of the individual policies, but let's just talk a bit, because budgets always start with the kind of headline growth figures. And we go with the OBRs one, but Tom, you mentioned in your piece for CapEx that the NIESR, which is kind of an institute, a think tank type organisation, had a very different um, set of numbers. So what, what's behind that? Yeah, I mean, radically different, actually. Um, I mean, if you look at the impact of the economic forecast on whether the government can meet its fiscal rules or not, and that's having a deficit below 3% of GDP in five years' time, and having debt falling as a percentage of GDP in five years' time, um, according to the OBR, you know, the government is going to meet those targets, but with very little room to spare. On the other hand, um, Nisa's numbers suggest maybe there's a hundred billion of headroom against that deficit target um, three year or five years out. Um, and you know, the point I made in the capex piece is it's not that one forecast is right and the other one is wrong. Frankly, we have no way of knowing. Uh, I'm sure you could investigate the methodology of the different models and everything and come to some some sort of preference. Frankly, I think the OBR is probably more realistic just instinctively. Um, but the fact that you can have such different numbers based on different assumptions, and I think the big difference actually is that NISA sees inflation being higher and staying higher for longer, A, and B, they see that persistent inflation having quite a flattering effect on the government's debt position, effectively yeah. eroding those debts yeah. away. The, yeah, and uh, I mean the, the classic thing about inflation is that it does you know, it has all sorts of other problems, but it does raise government tax revenues, um, as we as we've seen in the yeah. last. Absolutely. Um, but for me, the question, and this is what I raised in the, the CapEx piece, is should you really make individual policy decisions based solely on whether you're going to hit this target five years out um, when it's so sensitive to, frankly, quite random assumptions about interest rates, inflation, immigration, immigration and everything else? We need the fiscal rules. I think we discovered that the hard way uh, back in September. Um, but whether there needs to be some sort of tweak to the institutional setup we have at the moment, um, I, you know, I think that's an open question. Um, Rob, you mentioned it in your, uh, your opening remarks there. But, and during the statement, we had Tory MPs kind of cheering the fact that we wouldn't enter a, a technical recession. This seems like politically, it seems that we've reached a strange kind of baseline for where the country should be in terms of growth well the, the two comments which struck me one is obviously the chancellor saying you know um if we don't uh, make uh, ourselves more attractive for business investment we will tumble down the competitive league tables which is obviously a straight lift from cps research so we're quite happy about that but yeah, yeah. um it was um, you uh, paul johnson of the ifs saying you know in, in various ways look you know i don't think taxes are going down again in my lifetime um you have the you know the, the level, you know if you think about the sort of areas of spending demand there is there is the nhs there is um you know the the the, the huge expansion of early years in childcare which most people seem quite happy about in fact they seem annoyed that it's not happening sooner but that's still a big expansion of the state um you know there is the the 
aim to uh, increase defence spending to 2.5% of GDP and aid spending to 0.7% of GDP and you've got all the junior doctors going on strike and you've got the nurses going on strike and you've got all of the, you know, and, you know, the, the, the HS2 budget soaring into the, you know, there were just a lot, a lot, a lot, a lot of areas where people all seem to want more spending. And the problem is we don't really have the growth to pay for it. We are slightly putting the, not slightly, we are putting the putting the, the cart before the horse. And, um, you know, the, the argument we've been making here at the CPS fairly consistently is you know, without growth, we are nothing. And actually, to be fair, Labour um, have... Um, Labour have acknowledged that, but, they're, but they're, 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 and actually, you know, I, I, I was on a webinar with a with their, one of their business people uh, earlier today, and he was saying, you know, he, you know, unlike in the Corbyn era, he he was saying sort of largely sensible things, but but not quite, you know, but things that the Tories would love to do if they had any money, and they don't have the money, and that's that's just kind of where we are. Well, let's talk about some of the spending decisions that Jeremy Hunt did make, even within a very constrained uh, envelope, if you like. And the biggest one, uh, I, I believe, in terms of the actual fiscal impact, was full expensing. Um, now, Tom, how big a deal is this for businesses, notwithstanding the fact it's only for three years? And you mentioned in your piece you think it'll actually end up being for longer. I'll, I'll just go and get a cup of coffee while Tom rhapsodises. <laughs> <laughs> Tom loves this policy. Uh, <laughs> yes. Um, no, I do, so I, I do love this policy. I think that this is a, a hugely positive measure. Obviously, it's unfortunate that it's accompanied by such a big increase in the corporation tax rate. Um, it's, it's difficult to be very precise about these things. Um, but the corporation tax rate increase is going gonna, is gonna to hit the economy. Um, it will reduce investment, it will depress wages. Uh, and we think based on the modelling that we did with the Tax Foundation in the US, um, that the, the version of full expensing that they've decided to implement will probably make up about three quarters of the losses. So overall... But, but crucially, it, it would do that if it were permanent. Yeah, okay. Very important qualification, if yeah, it were most permanent. most of the cost is in the first few years, right? So yeah. it yeah. becomes progressively better for... Ex exactly, exactly. So the issue is when you introduce full expensing, you're letting businesses write off their new investments straight away. Um, that's good because it removes the structural bias against investment that's in the tax system. And that's kind of inherent when you separate the tax treatment of day-to-day -day spending and investment spending. Day-to-day -day spending comes off your taxable profits right away. Investment spending, you've got to spread that over a long period of time, write it off gradually. The problem is inflation eats away at the value of the deduction. And of course, also, businesses would much rather have the money to do other things with right now. Um, so it really diminishes uh, what they're getting back. So full expensing changes that. But because you have new investments being written off straight away, while you still have this big pool of old investments being gradually depreciated over time, initially, there's this big bubble of fiscal cost. Um, you know, really front-loaded in the first few years of the program. And that gradually dwindles away in the long run particularly the version of full expensing they've gone for, it's a pretty cheap policy for the growth benefits that it delivers. But again, those long-term benefits are entirely dependent on that being made a permanent feature of the tax system. Um, and this is really what I was alluding to when I was talking about the different forecasts and their impact on policy decisions. Jeremy Hunt said at least twice, and I've checked it's in the, the budget documents as well, that the government intends this to be a permanent program as soon as they feel it's fiscally responsible to make it so. Mm. Um, as Rob said, Labour are indicating they would make it permanent as well. Um, but we have this limited three-year policy for now simply because of the way the fiscal rules interact 
with the forecast. Anything to add on that, Rob? I think Tom's fairly comprehensive. I would never dream of outshining Tom in my enthusiasm for, for, Felix, for Felix Bensing. He, he, I mean, he, he, if, if there are sort of three or four people in the country who deserve credit for p- pushing this one uh, in the last few years, um, I mean, obviously our, our, our friend Sam Bowman would, would, would stand up for Manuel and Sam Dimitri, but I mean, Tom has been a, a zealous advocate. Yeah, one of the other things you mentioned in one of your recent Sunday Times column, the, the deep problems we have with investment um, in this country, a very long-standing problem. And we had a quite kind of micro measure on investment zones. There'll be 12, they'll only get 80 to £80 million. Pounds. But you noted on Twitter they don't include um, Cambridge, which is obviously one of the most kind of, how can I put it, one of the areas with the most growth potential in the country seems to have been repeatedly ignored. Yeah, and this is why I, I think the, the focus on, on the financial aspects misses the point. The, I mean, 80 million is not a lot of money, but what, what has more of a galvanizing effect is if you use these zones to, say, don't wheel strip away a, a whole load of the crud that makes it impossible to, to build. But Cambridge is, Cambridge is a really, really good example. So a few years ago, the government says, uh, the Oxcam arc, we have identified this as the most high productivity area of the country. It's one of the most constrained areas. We are going to absolutely go hell for level on this. Dear multinational businesses, come and invest in this. There'll be a new railway, there'll be new roads. Oxford will grow, Cambridge will grow, the areas in between them will grow. This is, you know, this is where where the, the action is. And then um, it turns out that um, Tory MPs and the local constituencies and local councils don't really like the idea that uh, have building a million new homes in this uh, in this particular region and um, kick up a huge fuss. And suddenly um, you've got Michael Gove saying, oh, actually, no, I'm Oxcam, yeah, never really convinced by it. And in fact, reportedly, uh, miming flushing a toilet when someone asked him what was happening to the project. Um, so, I, you know, so, so it, you know, there, there had been every indication that Cambridge was going to be one of the, like, you know, like, okay, fine, let's lop off the Ox bit, because Oxford is constrained by geography. But Cambridge is surrounded by just, you know, flatness in miles and miles and miles of flatness um, and you, you really have the potential to expand really has the potential to be a growth center for the for the country but fundamentally there just doesn't seem to be enough enough local appetite for that to happen so you know the, the, the investment zones are going to go to other places which I'm sure you know will be very well you know none of them are south of Birmingham I think um, you know they, they'll be very welcome they'll be you know they'll probably make a difference but but we found you know in the meantime like the most high productivity area you know it'll still be impossible to build a lab it'll still be impossible to build a, build the transport infrastructure was impossible to build housing for you know, for the workers who are needed we're just, we're just you know choking ourselves to death and in it, and if you compare what's happening there to what's happening in boston what happens in silicon valley it's you know it, we're just oh what a pathetic country we are <laughs> <laughs> uh indeed um one of the slightly different topic that has generated a lot of kind of media coverage since uh, the budget is pensions. Um, this is a slightly strange one in that Jeremy Hunt has abolished this thing called the lifetime allowance, but he's kept the annual allowance. So in, in de facto, it kind of amounts to the same thing. I mean, how big a deal, Tom, do you think this is? It particularly matters for, for the NHS, for GPs, the British Medical Association apparently saying that they're already being inundated with GPs saying they don't want to retire anymore. Um, is that the kind of main reason they've done this, do you think? Yeah, I think I think that is the big reason. It was it was part of their getting people back to work or stopping people from leaving the workforce um, package of of measures in the budget. Uh, and I think it's it's a wholly good thing. Um, abolishing the lifetime allowance, great. Um, increasing the annual allowance and reducing the taper, 
also great for very much the same workplace incentive reasons. Um, they also increase something called the money purchase annual allowance as well. Uh, also a good thing. Um, I think they could have gone further on some of those measures. Obviously, you can't go further than abolishing the lifetime allowance. Um, but there are still Give some... Money. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, right, right. There are still some poorly designed um, and distortionary aspects of our savings and investment system. Um, but we've moved very strongly in the right direction. Look, the lifetime allowance should just never have been a part of the policy landscape at all. Um, actually, the best thing to do would be to have an, a, a lifetime limit on contributions. Um, but you, you shouldn't really punish people if they make good investments and, and, and their retirement funds grow accordingly. And that's frankly what the lifetime allowance was doing, as well as having a very perverse effect on highly paid public sector workers like senior doctors um, and making them think really it wasn't worth uh, carrying on in their careers anymore. Mm. And Rob, do you think this is, it's strange to me that this is kind of what Labour have come out with as their kind of main rebuttal has been where they would abolish um, this policy. But in fiscal terms, it's really not particularly significant. Yeah, I mean, there's, there's, you know, there's, they're saying you, you're making the rich richer, typical old Tories. You know, it's what Labour would obviously would obviously do. But as, as, as Tom says, there is already the annual allowance. You know, you had doctors who were facing sort of marginal tax rates of more than 100% if they tried to, um, if they sort of tried to get involved in clearing the waiting lists. Um, and yeah, I, I think it, it just, it just makes sense. Um, you know, because, sorry to get technical, but, but essentially, like, you're kind of, you basically, you're being punished for making good investments. Like, if you, you know, if you put in the cash and you put it in the right track fund and that went up fivefold, then suddenly you would find age sort of 55 that you couldn't actually put in any more pension. Or, or suddenly, you'd find, you know, if the stock market went up by 5% that year and took you over the thing, suddenly you'd be hit by this tax bill that you had no, that you had no way of planning for or, no, or expecting. I think the controversy here, John, just briefly, no, uh, no. it's the curse of distribution analysis. I was literally about Yet to again. say that. Like, <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, um, and I think yeah. it's, quite, it's quite interesting. You know, um, people tend to, you know, some of the best post-budget analysis, leaving politics out of it, comes from the IFS and indeed from the Resolution Foundation. And people tend to think of them in, in, in kind of the same way because they, they produce the same great charts um, and the same detailed analysis and they, they turn it around very quickly and everything. But actually, I think this, this, this shows a fundamental divide between those two worldviews. Um, the IFS has been you know, very positive about getting rid of the lifetime allowance, the changes to the pension rules, because they're thinking of this from a tax design perspective. They're saying those old rules were stupid. They caused all kinds of distortions. They messed things up, and it's a better world when we've got rid of them. The Resolution Foundation is seeing everything through the lens of distribution and saying it seems like the government has spent money to give a benefit to richer people, and that is de facto bad and wrong, yes. and nothing can happen in politics unless it's focused yes. on the very poor. Although the even then, the distribution analysis does show that the, the actually the, the the poorest have benefited the most from from the budget. Yeah, I think as I think we've discussed before on the podcast, especially if you only look at things in isolation, you miss the overall effect. Yeah. Of it, it's worth it's worth noting that of all their policy positions, the Resolution Foundation's position on savings is by far their worst. They basically don't like people having savings. Right. I mean, we talked about tax cliff edges, and another one that has now emerged thanks to the things that Jeremy Hunt announced yesterday. Uh, is to do with childcare. So he's added lots of extra free hours for one to two year olds, which effectively means we'll get on, we'll t talk first about the overall policy, but then we can talk a bit about how this it creates another weird cliff edge for people on certain earnings. I mean, 
Rob, it strikes me that this is very much kind of like help to buy with housing. It's very much inflating the demand side of childcare. Do you think that the time lapse, so it doesn't come until 2025, and the supply side stuff is going to be enough to offset that? I, I don't know enough about the market. I think it's straight. There was an attempt to do supply side stuff. There wasn't. So the, the relaxing childcare ratio is that something that we've called for, campaigned for, are, are happy about. But it was notable on childminders, you know, we and lots of others have pointed out that this is a massively over-regulated sector. Now, I know you'd expect the CPS to say, ah, regulation, regulation, but like we impose, we, we impose qualification restrictions, curriculum restrictions, and sort of a, a, a whole apparatus of checking and inspection on childminders, which pretty much no other country does, and somehow their kids are all fine. And when this this edifice was imposed, what you saw was the number of childminders absolutely cratering. So rather than giving people, you know, a bo- you know bounties to become childminders, you know, one-off bonuses to become childminders, let's just make it easier to be childminders. So there's a point about sort of informal care here as well, which has been effectively made illegal in, in some instances. I yeah, think. yeah, we have no that, that, that that's a good point. So, um, I, if people would go to the CPS's uh, solving the childcare challenge report, which goes into all of this in great detail, yeah. and I do think John, you you hit on a key point, which is obviously parents are going to welcome the additional support um, for childcare, but will it have perverse effects if the increased demand outstrips the increased supply? And I just noticed on the way in that the IFS think um, that. Basically, the, the increase in supply from the, the measures the government announced yesterday will be outstripped by the increase in demand by about 50%. Now, that's assuming the government doesn't go any further on the supply-side regulatory reforms in childcare. And if you, if you look through the budget, they do actually say, we're going to consult on doing more in this area and on going further. But I think that's going to be the really important thing. They have to follow through there if this policy is going to have its desired effects. Um, okay, I mean it's another it's another good example as well of the kind of distributional kind of politicking involved in any budget. You kind of you hose love at certain people, certain voters, and one of the big problems it feeds into another problem with the economy, which is the labour force. It's aimed at helping, especially more women, get back into work um, because it makes childcare more affordable for a lot of people. You know, it's just not worth it going back to work. Um, but we at the CPS produced a big report earlier this week about. Uh, economic inactivity and Jeremy Hunt announced a few different measures including scrapping the work capability assessment. Um, I mean Rob how big a deal do you think what he announced in the budget was? What do you see as the main problems he's trying to solve? Yeah. I think that's, that is quite a big deal. I mean, one of the key points we made in our, our report is that the, the narrative that lots of people have been saying um, is you know we have a huge so we have an extraordinary record on unemployment. Um, it's now down to about 3.7%. That's, you know, give or take a percentage point. That's as low as it's been since 1974. You know, that's an insane, especially given where everyone thought we'd be when the pandemic hit, that's insanely good. Um, the problem is that 21.3% of our workforce are not, of our potential workforce, are not actually working, are economically inactive. And lots of people went, oh, pandemic, NHS, NHS falling over, long-term sickness, uh, so basically, you know, the, the, all of the, these people are people who are bedridden as a result of scandalous Tory neglect of the NHS. And what Hunt was saying, and what we said, is that's not not actually the truth. There are there are lots of different groups for whom lots of different things are happening. So there are people who are off long term sick. Um, the uh, and that has risen significantly. The uh, the, the budget mentioned in particular uh, musculoskeletal issues and uh, mental health, um, which are two of the most 
both to you know two of the areas that we're, we're all they're also the waiting list are longest in the NHS, which is a, a bit of a problem. Um, but you know, among among elderly people, bluntly, uh, the what with the 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 main driver appears to be early retirement. Um, you know, the the people who who are declaring themselves long term sick, they don't tend to have been in work, and they don't tend to go back to work when they stop being long term sick. Uh, it, it you know, I think so. It seems like a bigger issue is people just actually thinking, you know what, I'm quite I'm fine, and I don't really want to go. I mean, so among people who age fifty to fifty five, it's a bit more of a redundancy, a bit more needing to help them back into the into the workforce. Um, flexible working, make the work. Make you know, make sure workplaces more and more sympathetic. At the you know, at, at the younger age, there's a lot of the mental health is a big issue. There's a bit of a growth growth of needs, um, and there's a huge gender bias in, in, in this. That we, you know, if you strip out the fifty to sixty fours, actually more women are now back in the in the workforce than were before the pandemic. All of the rise in economic activity on a net basis has has been among men. Mm-hmm. And Tom, how much do you think this is just due to kind of societal trends and aging? Workforce, um, people cashing in yeah. on but, but housing so, sorry, wealth, for example. So, sorry, just to go back on that, because um, I didn't actually answer your original question. Um, so one of the issues, so um, I think the work capacity assessment thing could be quite big. I mean, one of the most striking phenomena in the in welfare policy has been a huge growth in the number of people um, claiming disability benefits which uh you know and I, I i think it's without casting casting aspersions like it is doubtful that every single one of those people you know it it, it it would take something quite extraordinary to have caused that rise in disability benefits just from people's actual mental mental health there's obviously something going on about here about how, you know how we you know how the incentives within the system um how easy it is to come back into work uh, various other things that, you know, there there obviously there may be some people who sort of hadn't declared you know, we may be well basically either we are discovering a huge untapped pool of people who actually had mental health issues and hadn't recognized it and hadn't come forward or something else is is going on mm. So, I mean, Tom, how much of this do you think is down to long-term sort of societal factors versus those short-term things that people always like to, you know, long COVID, as one Rob mentioned, right. that is kind of preyed in aid a lot. And and if it is sort of societal things, how, how much is within the, pol- the government's gift in terms of policymaking? Mm. Well, the first thing to say is that it's actually very difficult to answer that question in an evidence-based way, because even though... Frankly, most of the data I think you would need to draw firm conclusions on this stuff exists. Um, it's, it's incomplete, it's fragmented, it's split across lots of different government departments. You can't actually access it. Even the government probably can't pull this stuff together right. uh, and work out what the this heck is, is going on. This is Rob's database theory writ large, I think, as well. <laughs> so just, to, just for exactly. anyone who doesn't know, like, Rob has a thing called the database state, which is about how how policies work is basically to do with how the government manages various... St- yeah, like, I, I, it's arguable that the reason they did the pen, they abolished the pension lifetime allowance rather than doing something special for doctors, it, it was just it just worked more easily and you know the, 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 the computer said yes when it, yeah. would, when it would have said no to another solution. But, but as you were saying, you know, government departments don't talk to each other very well. Mm. Um, I mean, I remember anecdotally we had to sort something out with uh, statutory maternity leave and it took 12 weeks for my wife to get hers because the DWP and HMRC don't actually share their information with each other very well, which is quite kind of shocking to me. Yeah, yeah, and uh, it sort of adds to the impression, fairly widespread at the moment, that nothing really works with the British state. Um, Of course, we're saying that on the day of 
tube strikes yesterday and train strikes today and, and everything else School going strikes on. strikes as well. School yeah. strikes too. Uh, this is why our, our colleague Alice Denby is not here to regale us with her, her view that Philip Hammond was in fact a, a hilarious chancellor <laughs> at, the, at the dispatch box. Small which, mercies. Which I, which I agree with, frankly. Uh, but <laughs> anyway, <laughs> no, I mean, to answer your question very briefly, clearly there are short-term factors here uh, and the government is trying to address them to the best of its ability. Clearly, also, there are long-term factors that we need to think about as well. We have an ageing population. You're going to have increasing you know, sort of chronic health issues as part of that. You're going to have more demands on the welfare state. You're going to have more people out of work and a smaller workforce, all things being equal. Um, and that just really underlines the need to focus both on public service reform, but also on growth and productivity. And without those two things in the long run, as Rob mentioned earlier, the fiscal position is not a, a very pretty one. Um, so just to kind of zoom out a bit and finish off, let's talk a bit about the kind of retail politics of this, because budgets are always trying to, uh, chancellors are always trying to wear various hats. They want to be kind of fiscally sensible, but also there's a lot of the kind of love bombing of various sections of voters. And Rob, the Tory's sort of polling position does seem to be a little bit maybe better is the wrong word, less awful than it was a few months ago. How do you see this budget feeding into a sort of strategy for them over the next sort of two years or so ahead of a general election? Fundamentally, I don't think this budget changes the picture, but I don't think anything they could have done with their, the fiscal constraints they're under could have done. I mean, I, I think it's, it's very much a case of just avoiding... Um, you know, avoiding bear traps and not falling, you know, not falling flat on flat on your face. So I think the the attempt, the, you know, the stories are are twenty odd points behind. This, you know, it, it is a fairly grim picture. But Sunak's rating, personal ratings are going up. You know, the government has pulled together a very impressive string of actually getting stuff done. Um, you know, the Northern Ireland Protocol, for example, the deal with the deal deal on. Um, on with with on on the channel, you know the um, getting the asylum bill passed, um, deal a deal with France, uh, you know the AUKUS stuff, uh, flying to the US with the AUKUS stuff, reset of foreign policy. Like you know, there's so so there's a hope that the Tories ratings kind of rise, nudge up towards Sunak's. Although in in the long term, it's probably more likely that Sunak's fall down towards the Tories. Um, at least if his party keep being quite the fractious, rebellious uh, group that they have been. So, um, no, but so, so I think, but, well, I think what they're trying to prove is essentially competence. They're trying to prove to people that you can trust the Tories that they, you know, they will take responsible decisions in the long, responsible long-term decisions in the national interest, and all of that stuff. That there is a plan. The plan is working, and that you know, if the economy comes good, then and people start feeling better, it, then then they might look more kindly on the government. Of course, with living standards still falling, that's. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that strikes me as the kind of crucial question. We talk a lot about the kind of... It, the press likes to talk a lot about kind of quite peripheral kind of culture war mm. stuff, but it strikes me that that kind of Ronald Reagan to Jimmy Carter question, how do you feel? Do you feel better off than you were four years ago? Is the one that people will probably hold most prominently when they're deciding. Yes, and it was interesting in that respect to hear Jeremy Hunt sort of wax lyrical about the performance of the UK economy post-2010, um, talking about the mess he inherited and how Britain had sort of outperformed some of its peers over that period. Now, frankly, I can see why you would advance that argument politically. Feels like a bit of a tough sell to me um, to tell people that they're significantly better off and that the economy's all going swimmingly at the moment. And I do think when it comes down to it, you, you, you'll have had a long period of conservative government. And if people don't feel 
better off, if they don't feel like the country's working, if they don't feel like things are improving when the general election comes around, and we may only be maybe 14 months away from that, um, then they're going, they're going to look at a Labour Party, um, which is not nearly as scary as it was a few years ago, and think, why not give them a go? Uh, but I think the government is, is pursuing the most sensible and potentially profitable path open to it, um, which is to say, these are the very simple, very important things that we're going to achieve, um, and we're, we're sort of studiously going to pursue them and achieve them and then stand on that record. Um, not a lot else they can do with so little time left. Mm. So strong and stable, you could say. Um, to coin a great, a great slogan. Gents, thank you very much indeed um, for joining us. Uh, there's plenty of budget content on CapEx as ever, so do read that. We'll be going through all the different kind of policy areas with some crunchy analysis. Um, thank you all at home, as ever, for listening. And do tune in next week for another episode of the CapEx podcast. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.